You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. And I don't know when we're going to see it again. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll keep you posted on what's coming next. Uh, and so today we're going to be just reading and learning from the last uh, verses. So if you have a Bible, please open it with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 12 and go through the end of the, of the, the chapter. Um, before I start, I would like to pray, and then we, we can dive in. Dear Jesus, we come before you this, this morning thanking you for the opportunity we have to meet and to also have access to your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have in doing that. I also pray that uh, today, through the exposition of your word, we would be transformed, uh, we would also be comforted and confronted as well. Uh, but mostly I pray that our lives would glorify you in, in the doing, not only the hearing of your word. Uh, I pray that all of us would continue to be a blessing to the people around us uh, here in church and also outside of church. Help us love you and that that love will, would prompt us to love the people around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, just as a, as a preamble, this passage seems to be a little all over the place. There's, uh, I believe there's 17 different commands that Paul gives us in this text, and they're not only related to one topic. So uh, at first glance, it seems to be a little bit of everything, but if uh, we pay attention, there's a few uh, things that will show us that Paul is highlighting the necessity or our need for the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very high in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. 
Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. And so if you look at it, there's so many different uh, commands. Um, I think it's 18 of them. But I'm going to take it in three different sections. So the first section is going to be commands that have to do with the church leadership. We'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about uh, church leadership in a moment. And then the second will be commands or the group of commands that have to do with our community, with one another, within the church. Then the, the third group would be uh, the group of commands that have to do with our spiritual growth, our spiritual lives, our disciplines. And lastly, uh, we will address Paul's prayer for the church. So let's go ahead and and begin the first part, uh, Paul is very clear with his command. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And then notice verse 13, he says, and to esteem them very high in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So this is a very clear teaching, and this, there is no... Um, necessarily uh, ambiguity about whether we should respect and honor the pastors or the leaders in our church. That is something that the Bible teaches. In fact, we are called to even uh, esteem pastors of double honor or worthy of double honor. And that's actually what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That is all clear. And I believe that in America or some countries that are considered Christian co countries, I've noticed that clergy or pastors are, or at least were, usually respected just by the title they held. Unfortunately, this is not the case anymore. Pastors and clergy are no longer just respected because they have a title or because of the kind of clothing they wear. And I think that is actually more biblical. If you notice, what Paul is saying here is that we should respect and honor those people, the leaders and the pastors, because of their work. There is a clause, there is a condition that we must respect them and we must honor them because of their work. And actually it says, those who labor among you. The, the, the text in 1 Timothy actually says, those who rule well be considered of double or worthy of double honor. So what, what Paul is commanding us here is not to blindly respect or honor anyone who has a title of leader or pastor within a church. This is not restricted to pastors. In fact, Paul does not use the word elder here. He just uses the word leader. So this would apply to deacons and other elders within the church. 
And this is something we need to understand, especially in our society. If you are familiar with Christianity and everything that's been going on in the last couple of, I don't know, 20, 30 years, there's been one after another pastors who disqualify themselves, who abuse their position, who use the church for their own platform. We even now have the term of like celebrity pastors. And the reality is that some of these people are there because there are some of us who still consider them worthy of honor regardless of what they do. And that is not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching, even though it sounds harsh, it's conditioned to your labor. So if you are a pastor, if you are an elder, if you are a deacon, if you serve in the church, you are commanded, you are commanded to labor well. Erasmus of Rotterdam actually comments on this passage and says, Paul commands us to honor them, meaning the leaders or pastors, because of their work, not based on a mere title. So pastors are not to be honored based on how many degrees they have. Pastors are not supposed to be honored just because they have the title, but because of their labor. And that is something we need to keep in mind as church, as people in the church. This is what James tells his church. James was the brother of Jesus. He was writing a letter to the church in Jerusalem. He says the following in James 3, chapter 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So if this sounds a little harsh towards the leaders, it's true. It is harsher. Because the Bible says that if you decide to be a leader, if you decide to become a teacher, you will be judged with greater strictness. And that is okay. So I want to clarify that Paul is telling all of us as a church, your pastor should be honored. And you should esteem him highly if He's doing his job if he's ruling well. Now, how does that look like? What does it mean for a pastor to do his job well? Well, the Bible is very clear about what our job is as pastors, and it's to care for the people under us. We should be doing everything in our power to care for the people under us. We are not to use people for our vision. It is not our vision. It is not even our church. It is the church of God. You are all part of the same church. I am a part of you. You are a part of me. Pastors need you. You need pastors. There is no hierarchy here. There's no one that's better than the other. We are to care for one another. That's what a pastor is supposed to be. Someone who cares and gives his life sacrificially for the people that has been placed under his responsibility. So, yes, Paul is calling us to honor our pastors. But I believe that given the context of our society, we need to be a little more critical of the pastors that we have in front of us. Especially because people around us do not even believe in pastors. I said it a few weeks ago. Every time I say to people I'm a pastor, I immediately feel the awkwardness coming in the whole room. Because they, 
and this happened to me in Mexico. I moved to Mexico, and I, I, was, I was actually about to sign the contract for my apartment where we lived, and there was a, a lady that was in, in the room with us while we were signing the papers, and she, she said, what do, you, what do you do for a living? For a living? And I said, I'm a pastor. And she immediately says, oh, you make a lot of money. That is, that's literally what she said. Because that's what people think. Oh, you're one of those guys who uses people for your own benefit, right? That's what happens. People today, if you say I'm a pastor, you can, you can go from a pedophile to an abuser or all kinds of different things. And that's unfortunately where we are right now. And we have created this. It is also our responsibility as Christians because we have not held those in this position to their standard they need to be held. So I'm telling you as a pastor that you need to be caring for us as well. And caring for your pastor also means confronting your pastor. And Paul is telling us how to do it because he actually says, be at peace among yourselves. And later down in verse 25, Paul asks the church to pray for him. So he's not saying, hey, go around slamming pastors and confronting them left and right and be angry at them. No. You have the, not only the right, the responsibility to confront your pastor in love. The exact same way your pastor is supposed to confront you in love. So I want to make sure we know that Paul is calling us to esteem and appreciate our pastors under the condition that they do their job well. That's my first point. Then Paul moves on to talk about how to, how to talk or how to uh, uh, relate to one another within the church. And in verse 14 he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Then later in verse 26, he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So we're going to implement that last one starting today. That's funny, but in Mexico, we actually do it. We actually kiss each other. So you have a Mexican pastor, so I'm sorry. Just kidding. I have to be culturally respect, respectful. <laughs> so what Paul is telling us is how to deal with each other within the context of a church. And I want you to notice, and we've already talked about this, and I've actually named it. There's something that's called the theology of one another. Other, others call it the for otherness. But being in a relationship, not only with the leadership, but also with the people among, among us, is to engage fully, is to admonish, Loving each other meaning, means sometimes to rebuke your brother. And all of this is under the, the, the umbrella of doing it in love. Admonish the idol. That means if somebody is in your church and is not, maybe not serving and you know they could serve, maybe you should just give them a nudge. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should serve at the same level. I know there's uh, times that when people can serve more than others, but admonishing each other, rebuking each other, encouraging each other is part of loving one another. Being patient with each other is also part of loving each other, living in community. That is something we need to exercise in church, being patient. 
See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. In fact, if you notice, Paul is anticipating that people within the church will probably do evil things to other people within the church. So Paul knows this very well. And he's saying, when somebody within the church does something to you that is evil, don't do the same back to them. He says, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the way we should all interact with each other in love, encouraging each other, being patient with each other, not repaying evil to those who, who, who do evil to us. So how are we treating the people in our church? How are we relating not only to our leadership, but also to the people around us? We are responsible for one another as well. We are to all help each other grow in Christ. So as a pastor, I need you to help me grow in Christ. And as a, a member, you need me to, so I can help you grow in Christ. And the same happens with each other. We all need each other. And something that is happening in our society today is that we are not being willing to sometimes hear the people who think different from us. Listen, diversity in a church is not just or exclusively based on race or ethnicity. Diversity in the church is in all kinds of forms. Age, opinions, education, all kinds of different things. And we need to appreciate each other. You need to appreciate people's opinions, even though they're completely different to yours. I'm not saying that we cannot push back on each other, but we need to be comfortable within the church with our diversity in terms of all kinds of things. If you ask a single person how he feels about Friday night, it will be a very different thing than if you ask me how I feel about Friday night. Why? Because the single person sees it as an amazing thing. I see it as I'm exhausted. Amen. There you go. See, he thinks like me. I can get along with that. But that's just a, a silly example of so many different things that we can talk about. And we have so many different opinions about so many different things. That does not mean that we cannot be in church together. And this goes for almost everything. We have to be patient with each other. We have to be able to repay somebody who does evil. Even if somebody makes a, a harsh comment, we need to be able to love those people. How are we treating each other within the church? Paul is addressing how you relate to your leadership, and Paul is addressing how you relate to the people around you. And now, he goes to talk about you individually. The, all the previous commands before, uh, before verse 16, they're all about each other. But the following ones are all mostly individual. They could be also applied corporately, but they're mostly individual. Or have to do with you internally. And I would like to spend a little more time on this following section. Verse 16, Paul begins to say, rejoice always. He talks to the entire church, but it has a very individual connotation. 
17, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What Paul is basically saying, and let me summarize this. Paul is telling us to rely in the Holy Spirit. And let me, let me explain a little bit about this. Almost every single thing that we see here, the rejoicing, the praying, the gratitude, all of those things have to do with the Holy Spirit. In fact, specifically talking about rejoicing, Paul literally said in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, 1, 6, a couple of uh, chapters before that, he said, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He is attributing this to the Holy Spirit. And we know that Colossians actually tells us, sorry, Galatians actually tells us that this is part of the fruit of the Spirit. What is one of the first fruits of the Spirit? Joy. And this is something that we cannot come up with us, with, with our own strength. This is something that the Holy Spirit gives to us. And notice, this is a command. This is not the only place where the Bible commands us to rejoice always. In fact, the, comment, the famous commentary uh, writer, Matthew Henry, says that a truly religious life is a life of constant joy. And we should rejoice more if we prayed more. Let me just pause for a second. Have you ever thought of rejoicing as a command? Have you ever thought that the Bible commands us to rejoice? This is something that the Bible tells us that we need to do. But notice, this is something that the Bible only tells the Christian. It does not say that to everyone else. The Bible commands us as Christians to rejoice. Why? Because we have the capacity to do it because of the person that lives within us. And that is the Holy Spirit. And everything that Paul is about to say, it falls under that category. We could, be, we could say that everything that Paul writes in these last chapters is basically an appeal to be filled with the Spirit. The fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, not, it's, not just, it's not a plural, it's just one. The fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we can literally make the case that Paul calls us to be at peace with each other in verse 13. Paul calls us to be kind to each other in verse 14. He calls us to be patient with each other in verse 14 as well. He calls us to love each other in verse 15. He calls us to joy in verse 16. He calls us in faithfulness in verse 21 to hold on to what is truth. He calls us to goodness in verse 22. And he calls us to self-control in verse 22 as well by telling us to abstain from evil. But what is more clear is that in the middle of all these commands, Paul says something that a lot of people have a problem with. And that is, do not quench the Spirit. And to me, this is the key 
to everything that Paul is talking about. And I'm about to step into some difficult waters, depending on where you land on the Holy Spirit. And I acknowledge that I am in a Reformed church, and you might be a cessationist, meaning that you no longer believe that the work of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit are active today. Or maybe you are like me, who are a continuist, someone who believes that the Spirit is still at work and all of His gifts are still present today. We're not going to talk about tongues and all that stuff. Don't get weird on me. <laughs> but regardless of where you land with the Holy Spirit, we all believe that th there is a fruit of the Spirit. There is a supernatural intervention of the Spirit in the Christian life. In fact, God sent His Spirit so that we could be helped. That's literally the name of the Holy Spirit, the Helper. And we are sealed with the Spirit. So if you're a believer, you, ha you have the Holy Spirit within you. And He will help you. Jesus actually said, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say on that day because the Spirit will tell you what to do. So even if you're a cessationist, there are certain things that the Spirit still does within your life. And Paul is telling us, do not quench the Spirit. And I know that as Reformed, we know that nobody can stop God's sovereignty. He does as He will, and that is, that is true. But when it comes to our sanctification, when it comes to our work of, of the Spirit in our lives, we also play a part. And this is not the first time that he says that. In fact, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that we should not grieve the Spirit. So the Spirit is someone that lives within us, a person of the Trinity that we can actually interact with and affect in some way. Nobody can resist God's will. But there is a participation. We are responsible to work alongside the Spirit in the work of sanctification in our life. And this is funny because the Bible actually talks about the Spirit as fire. At least in three different verses. This is the first one. In fact, when, the, when, when Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, he, that word quench literally means to put out a fire. Then you have 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 through 7. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. So Paul is telling Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. And he says, which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God gave us, and this is the gift, a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Then another reference to fire and the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 2 when the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit and then what appears on top of them? Flames of fire. So what does Paul mean when he says do not quench the Spirit? Do not grieve the Spirit. I firmly believe that what Paul is telling us is to not impede or be an obstacle to the work of the Spirit in our lives. I believe that the idea here is that we are making the work of the Spirit difficult in our lives by not utilizing what is at our, at our disposal. What is it? Prayer. 
joy, gratitude, all of those practices that are important and critical to the Christian life. We are being obstacles to the work of the Spirit in our lives. We are not doing our part in our own sanctification. Uh, there's an author that you've probably already heard me mention a couple of times. His name is René Padilla, and he actually comments on this. And he says that one of the ways to see this and one of the ways to interpret this is thinking of putting out a fire means throwing dirt to a fire, right? What happens to a fire if you throw dirt on it? It just eventually will drown, right? It will, it will, you will put it out. So what he's saying, and he's alluding to the fact that we spend a lot of time investing, putting in our own lives earthly things. Most of our lives are surrounded and filled with dirt, with earthly things. And that is normal. But the emphasis should be in what is it that we're doing to fan the flame, to not quench the spirit, to not grieve the spirit. Most of us, if you're like me, we're busy and our lives work around work, bills, family, appointments, relationships, repairs, other people, kids, school, whatever you want. Most of our lives is constantly putting stuff of this earth to our lives. Constantly. That's where we live. That's what we continue to do. That's what occupies our minds. That's what utilizes our time. And I'm not saying that all of those things are bad. That is normal. That's what happens. It's life. I'm not saying that there's something wrong with that. What I'm saying and what I think Paul is saying is how are we counteracting that? What are we doing to counteract that? What kind of things are we doing that will fan the flame of the Spirit in our lives? Because if we just go through the motions, what's going to end up happening is that we're going to quench that flame. And that is precisely what Paul is saying. Do not quench the Spirit. And surrounded, uh, surrounding that statement, there is pray, be gracious, be, be, be thankful What are we spending our daily time on? What Paul is telling us is add fuel to the Holy Spirit. Revive uh, the, the flame that's within you. And I believe that he's pointing us to spiritual disciplines. And the reality is that I was under the impression before I became a pastor that I was just going to be more spiritual or grow faster because I was just going to be a pastor. Because my work was praying, meeting with people, reading the Bible, studying, preparing sermons. And I realized that I can do the exact same thing. Quench the spirit by not spending time with God or practicing my spiritual disciplines. I was quenching the spirit by spending time in, minutes, in, min, in meetings, studying for sermons, going to conferences, doing staff meetings, going to church events, having speaking engagements. All of those things were good, 
they were not fanning the flame of the Spirit in my life. And I realized something. I was thinking of when my parents became Christians. My parents became Christians when I was 11, and they were about to get a divorce. And I clearly remember the 180-degree change that my parents experienced because they were full in. My parents went from zero to 100, I think, in a week. And what they did was, I remember my parents, since the moment we started going to church, they bought all the cassettes back then. <laughs> At the end of the church, they used to sell the, the cassettes with the sermon. I don't know how they did it. They had this machine that like, recorded all the sermon, and my parents always bought the cassette at the end. My mom went and bought a bunch of worship CDs, and if you're familiar with the Pentecostal worship Hispanic songs, they're really like lively, and she would start cleaning on Saturdays like, like with loud Christian music. So we were all like, I was inundated. Like I went from not knowing what Christianity was or ever attending a Christian church to like a wave of everything Christian. And I remember there was always something. My parents bought the Bible that was like back then, the, the King James or Reina Valera for those who speak Spanish. Uh, and... That's what they, like, it was either music or Bible reading or sermons or videos or Christian movies left behind, all that stuff that they scared me with. All of that, I was, I was constantly, constantly consuming Christian stuff. Till this day, most of the verses I remember are in the King James in Spanish, in Reina Valera. Why? Because it was drilled in my brain. But then I went to a Bible, Bible college and I was too cool to do that because now I was mature. <laughs> I did not need it. I, I don't need all that stuff that my parents did. So I started just attending church, having my devotionals, 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there. And then I started allowing some cool music, DC talk. <laughs> but I added Nirvana because I wanted to be cool. And that's how I realized who was copying who. Um, but I started kind of like balancing out my intake of Christianity. And I became this well-balanced Christian. But this is the crazy part. The more I walk with Jesus, the older I get, the more I realize how not cool I am, how not mature I am, and how needy I am of Jesus. We are weak. We cannot afford to quench the spirit. We desperately, daily, hourly need the grace of God and the power of the spirit at work in our lives all the time. And Paul is telling us, don't forget about these things. So I want to invite you, this is my main point. Remember, you don't have to be cool. Christianity is not about, it's not about being cool. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you're a Christian, people think you're stupid. Plain and simple. Our message is foolishness. Stop trying to be cool. It's not cool. If you want to be cool, be something else. 
If you want to be a Christian, assume your stupidity and say, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need worship music. I need the Bible read. I need to be hearing podcasts in my car. I need it. I need it daily. That's what being a Christian is. It's being a beggar. It's being the thief next to Jesus saying, please take me with you. That's what being a Christian is. And this is the crazy thing. We have the spirit within us. It's already inside of you. All you have to do is fan it. But you know what we do? We forget about it. We just continue to put dirt on it. Fast. Take time to fast. Go on a retreat. It doesn't have to be perfect. Fail at it. Continue to fail your entire life. It's fine. Try it. Memorize scripture. Listen to scripture. Pray with somebody else. Put your music loud on your car of worship music at home, wherever you are, in your break at school or your work, anywhere. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit always. And as a Reformed church, I want to say this. Stop being picky. And that's to me too. We are so selective of everything Christian that we consume. If it doesn't say the right thing, if it's not done the right thing, if this song says something that we might not agree because it's a sloppy wet kiss, if it's whatever, we just don't want to listen to it. Paul is literally saying, do not despise, despise prophecies. Maybe you don't believe in prophecies, but look at what he says. Test everything and hold on to what is good. We should be able to grasp and read and listen to everyone, test it, and hold on to what's right. And unfortunately, that is one of the biggest problems with the Reformed Church. We don't want to, oh, no, 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 that's not, yeah, no I, I don't believe in that thing. And then I shut the whole thing down and never hear from them. We need our brothers and sisters that are Pentecostals. We need to hear them. We need to hear the egalitarians, and we need to hear the cessationists, and we need to hear the whatever. They're not entirely wrong. Even Catholics have really good theology sometimes. And guess what? We are not the ones who got it right. I will assure you of that. Family, we need God. We need the Holy Spirit desperately. All the time. All the time. Let's go to that. Let's cry out to him. Let's fan the flame. Let's not quench the spirit. And look at how Paul finishes this part. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He's saying, yeah, everything I just said, do it. But guess what? The one who will sanctify you completely is the God of peace. And then he says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Please listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this is the nonsensical thing about our faith. Is that yes, do it, but he's already done it. 
Everything I just said is not a call to your willpower. This is not to make you feel bad because you didn't pray or because you haven't fasted in two years. This is an encouragement for us to run to God and ask the Holy Spirit that He gave us to do what we cannot do. And guess what? He will surely do it. In fact, let me tell you, God wants you to do it. More than you, He wants you to be blameless. More than you want it, He wants to sanctify you. He is interested in you. He is interested in giving you peace. He is very interested in giving us, giving us joy. Sometimes even more than us. And that is only available through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we do these things because now we have the privilege to exercise these disciplines. It's not a condition for salvation, but a blessing that we get to enjoy. God will sanctify us. Salvation is an act of God from beginning to end. God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. The Father took the initiative and sent His only Son to save us. Christ came and emptied Himself for us. He lived the perfect life in our place. And He died as a, as a perfect, sinless human being in our place. And He was treated like a criminal. He was cruelly killed on a cross in our place. And He took our sins in order to pay for them by His death. He has forgiven us. He has cleansed us by his blood. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death by resurrecting from the grave on the third day. And he now promises us to give us eternal life and perfect life with him in a new heaven and a new earth. And not only that, while we're on this earth, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit as a gift to help us become more like him. And this Spirit gives us power to be His witnesses and to live holy lives. And He guides us while we're on this earth. Now, if you're a believer, by God's grace, you have the ability to fan the flame of the gift of God within you. And if you're not a believer, this is free. I'm not selling anything. This is free. All you have to do is say, I want it. I need it, and it's yours. Jesus died on the cross for you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. He wants you to experience the gift of salvation and the Spirit, and you will start to feel and see a supernatural person working within you. That is our invitation for us today. And I end by saying, there is only one way that New City Fellowship will survive this transition. And this is true for all the churches, even if they're not going through a transition. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not about technique. This is not about vision. This is not about strategy. This is about the Holy Spirit in us being light and salt in this world. Let's pray.